Thank you, DJ and worship team, for leading us this morning. Hey, good morning, church. It's sweet to uh, be gathered together in one service today. Uh, a lot of folks are sick or traveling, but it's, it's good to be able to worship the Lord together here in one service. Today is a little different than a normal Sunday, Sunday morning service. So if you're new here, um, first of all, welcome. My name is Nick Lees. I serve as a senior pastor, but today is what we are calling Fifth Sunday, um, and that's because it's the fifth Sunday of the month, so a very catchy name there, a very creative, I know, but um, in the course of a year, right, there are uh, four Sundays, or four months with five Sundays in them, and what we have said in 2021 that we want to do is we want to take those fifth Sundays, come together as one body in one worship service, and then go out afterwards and go serve in our community. We, we talk a lot about a church, as a church how we want to be a, a church involved in the community who's caring for our neighbors, meeting their needs. And so this is one of the ways that we're seeking to do that this year. And so uh, after this service today, we're going to be going out and ministering to a whole bunch of different folks in a variety of ways. Thankful that we have over 70 adults and kids signed up for this morning. Um, even on a, a weekend where many are traveling or many are sick, that tells me that you guys are ready to serve. So praise the Lord for his work in you. Um, and we're going to be partnering with several different groups today. So uh, Agape Pregnancy Center is one. Uh, Garden Gate Ranch, which uh, rescues women from human trafficking, is another. Grimes Volunteer Support Services, who's helping uh, elderly folks in our community to stay in their homes and remain independent. Joppa Homeless Outreach, which is in downtown Des Moines. And then Many Hands Thrift Store, uh, which is raising support for missions work in Jamaica. And then lastly, we're going to have groups out cleaning up our town. Uh, just doing a variety of things there, and then another group will be here watching the kiddos so that we can all go do that. So um, just a lot of different ways that we get to be out involved in the community and, and serving the Lord um, together. If you haven't signed up for anything and you want to still participate, uh, just chat with me after the service, and we'll get you plugged into one of the projects. My hope for this morning is that we will continue to worship now through the study of the Word and then carry that on into the rest of the morning as we go out and be the hands and feet of Christ in our community. Well, today uh, we're going to be continuing our series in the Gospel of Matthew um, called Opposition Intensified. That's our series, and we're going to be picking back up in chapter 18. Now, last week, this next set of interactions that we're studying today was kicked off by the disciples coming to Jesus and asking him a question. Do you remember what the question was? Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Right? That's the question. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? It's a very heart-revealing question. You don't have to wonder what the disciples are, are thinking about. Their pride is being revealed. They want to know, what's our status, Lord? Where do we rank? And what follows in chapter 18 of Matthew is an extended lesson from Jesus. He's intentionally discipling these 12 men. And throughout this chapter, there's this theme woven of childlike humility. Jesus is teaching them, hey, you need to repent of this pride. And become like little children who are known for complete dependence on God. See, the expectation for disciples is that they would have humble faith. A humble faith that flees temptation and is ultimately seeking the good of others. And so as Jesus calls them to this type of humble faith, he then explains that God cares for his little ones. In fact, God cares for them so much that when one goes astray into danger... God lovingly goes after them and brings them back into the fold. It's an incredibly personal uh, interaction there. God is personally involved in each and every life of his people, his sheep. 
He's personally invested in your spiritual well-being. Listen again to what we read last week in Matthew 18, verse 14. Jesus said this, So it is not the will of my Father, who is in heaven, that one of these little ones should perish. And do you hear what Jesus is saying there? God's will is that none of these little ones should perish. None, not a single one, should be lost or destroyed. That's what it means to perish. This is not simply talking about a sheep wandering off and getting physically lost in the wilderness. This is speaking of a human being who's in danger of spiritual death. And God will not suffer to lose any of his little children. He's more than willing. And he's more than able to care for and to protect his people from spiritual death. Which is a very powerful statement about the love and care of God for each one of you if you're in Christ. Nothing can separate God's children from their heavenly father. And Jesus is teaching the disciples, hey, look, God has a great care and compassion for his flock. No one goes missing that the father doesn't notice and he doesn't pursue and come after you. And what's incredible is that God then goes on to invite the disciples and consequently us today as followers of Jesus to partner with him in caring for his flock. That's exactly what Jesus is going to teach his men next in verses 15 through 20. That the responsibility of caring for God's flock is a shared responsibility. God extends this responsibility to his people. His intent is that they would watch out for one another and that they would pursue after each other and protect each other from wandering away into temptation and sin. So let's go ahead and turn now to Matthew 18, um, verses 15 through 20. That's roughly page 480 if you grabbed one of the blue Bibles on your way in this morning. Go ahead and turn there and we'll read verses 15 through 20. Study it together. I'll give you a second to get there. All right, here's what Jesus says next. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church... Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. and Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Now, if you've been around our church or a previous church that uh, obeys these verses, you probably have heard of this passage as the church discipline or church restoration passage. And it's commonly referenced as that because it's clear here that Jesus is teaching uh, his followers how to handle sin within the congregation, within the assembly, within the church. You see, as God's people, we are called to function much differently than the world around us. We're called to be a people who takes temptation and sin seriously. We even saw that last week in verses 7 through 9. Woe to those through whom temptation to sin comes. It's not fitting for us as Christians to make peace with sin. We must be on guard against it. We are to be holy as God is holy. Now this entire chapter of Matthew, it cannot be divorced from our understanding of who God is. 
and what he's doing in his grand redemptive plan that we've been studying about for the last year and a half in the Gospel of Matthew. You see, this is yet another outworking of his plan. He is creating a people for himself who are his image bearers on the earth. A people who are holy and righteous, compassionate and humble, who are quick to confront sin, who are quick to forgive one another. That's who God wants. That's what he's making for himself. He didn't send his son to die on the cross and raise from the tomb to create a people who just stayed the same and never changed. He wants disciples who are radically different. Men and women who are very concerned with holiness. Who take sin seriously. And because God is about this work, he is creating a community of people. This is not just a a solo thing here. It's not just a personal concern. It's a corporate concern. God is making a people for himself. A community. A church for himself. And so we are called to look out for one another's spiritual well-being, to protect each other, to watch over one another. And over the past two weeks, you've heard uh, this passage from Hebrews repeated, and I'm going to share it again today because it is so appropriate. It's Hebrews 3, 12 through 14, which says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day. As long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. That's what we're called to as Christians. We are called to care for one another. We're called to protect one another. God commands that we're involved in each other's lives to say, Don't be deceived, brother. Don't be deceived, sister. Sin is deceitful. I need you to warn me and help me, just like you need me to warn you and help you. We are in this together to protect each other from the deceitfulness of sin. And as we practice this, we do protect each other from unbelief. And we guard the public testimony of God's church. And we defeat the machinations of the devil. And in all of that, God is glorified. He's revealed as holy. He is worshipped as such. And so with that understanding, with that calling in mind, let's spend our time together talking about how we partner with God to care for his people. Here's the first, first way we can do that. Obey God's plan for addressing sin. Obey God's plan for addressing sin. That's very clear from this passage in Matthew 18. Jesus expects his disciples to handle and address sin. Followers of Jesus Christ must understand it's not an option to avoid addressing sin. That's not even on the table. You can't have that mindset. And just so we're clear and on the same page, sin is anything that goes against God's will and God's standard. Sin is anything that goes against God's will and God's standard. It literally means to miss the mark or to commit a wrong. You're missing the mark of God's will. You're committing a wrong against his standard of right. Now, when we talk about addressing sin, we always need to start with self first. That's a good place to start. Earlier in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, Jesus made that pretty clear. In Matthew 7, verse 5, he said this, You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. 
You've got to start with yourself first, right? You've got to take steps to address the patterns of sin that are in your life, patterns of selfishness, patterns of fear of man, laziness, any other sin issue that is keeping you from walking with the Lord in obedience. But as you address your own sin, then you must also be willing to address your brother or sister's sin. Verse 15 made that very clear. Look at it again. Here's what Jesus said. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. The whole scenario that that Jesus lays out here is addressing if your brother sins. If your brother sins. If that happens, then you need to do something about it. Now, it says against you. Uh, it's debatable whether that was actually in the text and originally or not. It might have been carried up from verse 21. We see it down there on verse 21. But either way, Jesus is still speaking about addressing the sins of another. What are we to do? How are you to respond when a fellow Christian sins? You're to go to him. That's what it says. Go to him, meaning you put the effort in to seek them out. You're not waiting around, uh, expecting them to come to you, and then you'll talk to them about it. From the very moment that you are aware, you go to them. You seek out this brother or this sister. And when you find them, what are you to do? It says, tell him his fault. Now, the verb tell him is actually a little more forceful than that. It, It means to expose or to reprove or to convict So what Jesus is telling his disciples to do is he's saying, go to that sinning brother and convict him of his sin. Now to convict means to bring a person to the point of recognizing wrongdoing. So you're going to this person and you're seeking to help them agree with God on this matter. Brother, how you're living is sinful. It doesn't please the Lord. It goes against God's will and his standard. That's not what God wants for you. Please repent. Please flee from this sin. The standard throughout that whole interaction is God and his word. This is not about my interpretation of things versus their interpretation of things. We're talking about clear-cut sin. This is wrong according to God's will and standard. And what Jesus goes on to lay out in these verses is a multi-step process to protect one another from sin, to protect God's people from sin. And it starts one-on-one. Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. There's privacy in the matter. The goal is not to broadcast someone's sin to the world. It's simply to get them uh, away from the dangers of that sin and back to the fold. And if they respond with confession and repentance, the matter is resolved. Hallelujah. Praise God. The wayward brother has been restored to the flock. They've been brought back into a right relationship with their creator. That is the ideal outcome. One-on-one, confrontation happens. Confession is the response. Repentance is the response. Unity is restored. However, that's not always the case, which is why Jesus then provides several other steps to this process. And each one of these steps includes bringing in more people as needed, for the sake of convicting this sinning brother, so they will confess their sin and turn from it. Let's just stop for a second here. I just want to speak to those of you who like to go through life kind of on your own, and you don't want people involved in your business, right? You say, no, 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 stay, keep distance. I don't need you in my stuff. 
You need to take note of what Jesus is teaching here, if that's, if that's how you tend to approach life. That's not an option for Christians. We don't have the freedom to tell others, butt out, mind your own business. God has commanded us to be involved in protecting one another from the deceitfulness of sin. And so you must learn to love the communal aspect of our faith. You've got to stop holding others at arm's length. Stop trying to hide the, the temptations and the sins that you're struggling with from your brothers and sisters in Christ. Because that's actively resisting God's plan for your life. You are actively opposing what God says is best for you. You're making it harder for your brothers and sisters in Christ to come alongside of you and help you and to restore you to the fold. We see that if a person does not listen, when one brother comes to confront him privately, Jesus says the next step is to get one or two others to come. Their job is to serve as witnesses. They're witnessing the event and the confrontation here, and they're providing some additional accountability for this sinning brother to repent. And then if that isn't successful, if that doesn't convict them, you bring the entire church into the process. Now the whole assembly is to pursue after this wayward brother and call him to repentance. Now, there is a distinct beauty in all of this, in this whole process. What has started so small has grown exponentially with more and more people added into this process solely for the good of the wayward brother. They're all united by their desire to see this brother restored to the community of believers, to be restored to his relationship with God. That's why they're together. That's what they're after, his good and his restoration. The beauty of this process is that's the goal throughout it, the brother's restoration. We've already talked about this, but this is partnering with God to care for his flock. That's what this is about, caring for God's people. You're simply trying to protect a wayward brother from the horrible consequences of his sinful rebellion. When I was prepping for the sermon, it made me think of the sober warning of Proverbs 16, verse 25. Listen to what Proverbs 16, verse 25 says. It says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. There's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. We all know experientially what it's like to be deceived by sin. To think, man, if I just have one more, right, no big deal. One more glance, what's the harm? One more drink, no one will need to know. One more bitter thought. The path to a hardened, deceived heart is paved with just one more. The end of that path is death. We have all walked that path at different points in our life. And it's often been at the counsel of a loving brother or sister that God uh, brings us back to a place of repentance. We also all likely know at least one or two who weren't willing to heed the call to repent and who have continued down that path of unrepentant sin to their own harm. That's why God has instituted this process for us to care for and protect one another. It is not the will of the Father that any of these little ones should perish. The second way that you partner with God in this process of caring for his flock is by valuing holiness and restoration of the wayward. Valuing holiness and restoration of the wayward. 
You know, I know personally how tempting it is for me to just think, well, I'll just mind my own business. I don't, I don't really want to get involved in anyone else's mess, Lord. That's a lot of work. Guess what? That's not an option for us as Christians. We can't think that way. God did not rescue and redeem you from sin so that you could have a nice, comfortable, easy life in your bubble. He rescued and redeemed you into a community of believers, a community who's called to holiness, and yet a community who will daily struggle to live out that call, filled with people who will continue to battle with temptations and sin and and struggle with believing the lies of the enemy. God knows what he's doing. He knew that we would be prone to deception. He knew that we would need one another. And so he called us to pursue one another for the sake of restoration to holiness and to his community. What that means for you is there's no room for a petty, vindictive, bitter, proud, or unforgiving heart if you're going to be a part of God's community. If those traits are in your life, if you see those things, now would be a good time to spend some time confessing that and fleeing from it. Because they're going to actively hinder your willingness to do exactly what God is calling you to do here. To value holiness and restoration of the wayward. How could you possibly go and convict the brother whom you hate in your heart? The answer is you won't. You'll demand they come to you first. You'll want them to beg and grovel at your feet, and then maybe you'll forgive them. Or even worse, you won't even bother to go after them. You'll just let them continue in their sinful rebellion. That's not Christ-like at all. Jesus says, go after the brother who has sinned. Possibly even sinned against you. You have to care more about that person's holiness and restoration than you care about being right then you care about your feelings getting hurt, right? Value the things of God more than the things of man. Our world would tell you, hey, you'd be right to get your pound of flesh. If someone's taken something from you, then it's okay to get even or to get it back. But God says that your first priority needs to be your brother's spiritual restoration. That's what you need to care most about. That needs to matter more than you, to you than your feelings being hurt. Um, or even other hurts that have been given at this brother's hand, what you want most in this situation is your brother's eternal spiritual good. That has to be what's driving you. That's challenging, isn't it? Probably convicting for, for all of us. It's natural for us to think about self first and not about others. Here's what I want you to think about now as you make this personal. Are there relationships in your life where you fail to go and convict a brother or sister who has sinned against you? Do you have any relationships like that in your life right now where you have failed to go and address sin in a brother or sister's life? And if the answer to that is yes, it would be worth your time to evaluate, well, why haven't I obeyed God? Why haven't I done what he calls me to do? What is it that's keeping you from obeying Christ in this matter Perhaps God intends to use you in the process of restoration of that brother or sister. I want to make a caveat right there. That does not imply that your disobedience hinders or thwarts God's plan in any way. God does not need you to restore the wayward. 
But guess what? It's a whole lot better when you do obey. God is working in your life and in theirs in this process. The outcome is so much sweeter when you do it willingly and joyfully and obediently. Die to yourself and pursue your wayward brother or sister. I want to encourage you not to fall into the trap of, of believing the lie that you're being loving by failing to go to them. The only person you're loving in that scenario is yourself. You're doing what comes natural to human beings. You're avoiding hard situations that make you feel uncomfortable. That's not love. That's selfishness. And it has the double detriment of not only being sin in your life, but now it's also allowing your brother or sister to continue in sin in their life. And both of you now are are suffering as a result of that choice. It's not good. Now, in in a healthy church, in healthy relationships, this process of addressing sin is happening like all the time. As often as necessary, in fact, to protect one another from sin. And if, if we're just being honest this morning, we, we should be honest in the Lord's house, right? We sin a lot. I don't know how many people are here this morning. We'll say 70, 75. In a given week, there's a lot of sin in your lives, in my life, that needs to be worked through. And if, so if we're going to live in this community that God has called us to be in, that should be giving us lots of opportunities to help one another grow in holiness and to be restoratively addressing sin. We've got plenty of opportunities to do this. So if you're here and you're thinking, well, shoot, I don't, I don't remember the last time I've ever gone to someone and confronted them in, in, in their sin with the goal of restoring them, of, of seeing them brought back into relationship with God and with others. That's a problem. That's a problem if that's what you would say. You're either blinded by selfishness or you're not cultivating deep relationships with other Christians. So if that's you, I would urge you to do some self-reflection this week, some holy self-reflection. And ask God, how do I need to grow? How do I need to go deeper with other Christians so that I can partner with them and protecting them and they can partner with me in protecting me? You've got to have those kind of relationships where people are let into your life. It's a beautiful thing when God's church is functioning as the community that he has called it to be. A community committed to holiness and restoration of the wayward where everyone is protected, where everyone is encouraged to keep pursuing the Lord together. Now, unfortunately, Jesus also has to address the sad scenario where a professing brother or sister does not repent, even after multiple levels of confrontation. And throughout this process, uh, what we see is it's unrepentance that always takes it to the next step. And when Jesus gets to verse 17, here's what he says. If he refuses to listen to them, Tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. This is a sad but necessary outcome of unrepentant sin. If they refuse to leave their sin, then you must treat them as one who doesn't know the Lord. That's what it means when it says, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. These are the categories of people who are at the bottom of the Jewish moral scale. They're saying, treat the sinner differently. And what I found surprising as I was studying this passage more is the instruction is given to you in the singular, not the plural. This is first an action that the individual takes, right? So they started by going one-on-one. 
And then they continued when that person was unrepentant to bring one or two others. And then they brought it before the church. Again, each time the individual is helping take the process through the steps. Now they have to treat their brother or this one who professed to be a brother as a Gentile or tax collector. The individual does that. But then it's ultimately a decision that the entire community of disciples upholds. Each member of the church is to abide by the corporate judgment. Here's our takeaway, our third one, for caring for God's flock. Uphold God's judgment on the unrepentant. Uphold God's judgment on the unrepentant. What Jesus teaches is that there's a point based on their unrepentance where you must treat them differently than as a Christian. And that's for their good, to help them realize you're not living like a Christian should live. Like a Christian is called to live. And what you need to realize is this is not about whether you sin or not. Everyone sins. Everyone struggles with temptations to sin. The difference between a Christian and everyone else is that a Christian confesses and repents when they sin. They don't just leave it. They don't just ignore it. They do something about it. They're not comfortable remaining in sin because they know that sin does not please God. They desire holiness. They desire pleasing their creator more than they desire continuing in their sin. Christians are convicted by the Holy Spirit. And they turn from sin in order to be holy. So this is ultimately about unrepentance. It's about someone who professes to follow Christ and yet willingly continues to live in a contrary manner to Christ, staying in their sin. What they're doing is their lived faith is now contradictory to their professed faith. And that's a problem. God says that this must not be. Sin is meant to be addressed and dealt with so that you can continue to grow in holiness. It's not an option to avoid it. It's not an option to pretend it's no big deal. We must address it. And so what you need to take away from this point is that it's your job to uphold God's judgment. That comes down to you. As part of the church, you are to do your part in following through with treating this person like a Gentile or a tax collector. Here's how we say that plays out at our church. This comes from our membership class. It comes from our notes about church discipline. If it gets to this final stage, it says this, he is only welcome to the church gatherings to hear with the hope of listening and repenting. All discussions with the church family should be on that topic. Social activity and non-teaching relations should be stopped. Communion should not be offered. (coughs) If you're paying attention to that little blurb there, the relationship has changed dramatically with, with, with such a person. What you're doing now is you're prioritizing their repentance above all else. Can you tell me why that would be the case? Why would we do that? Why would we act that way? Restoration, right? It's, it's about their eternal spiritual well-being. We care about their souls a whole lot. This is what God has called us to do. We don't want them to continue in sin. We don't want them to be heading down the path that leads to death. And that's far more important than simply them feeling liked by us or appreciated by us. Right? Their soul's well-being in light of eternity is of far more importance So here's what you must do. You must not believe the lie that this process is harsh or unloving. It's anything but that. This was given to us by the Son of God for the sake of protecting the souls of his people. 
What that means then is if you are undermining the call to uphold, God, uphold God's judgment on the unrepentant, then that is a big deal. You're actually making it harder for that person to feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit. You're feeding their lie that they're believing that, well, this is not that big of a deal. That's just a little sin. That, why are you making such a big deal about it? For example, let's say there was a pastor disciplined from this church who was still in vocational ministry. Perhaps he decided even to start a church plan, and you decided, hey, I'm going to like that on social media. I'm actually going to even post encouraging comments on some of that so that he'll remain in ministry without repenting or being restored to his former church. Do you see how confusing that is? Do you see how that undermines the process of church discipline? It's not loving. Or how about this? How about getting together with folks who have gone through this process and yet failing to bring up their need to repent? How's that loving? We're just sharing a meal together. But at what cost? At what cost? You're actively confusing them about the seriousness of their sin and the consequences that it will have for their souls. You're opposing the work of God in their lives, and it's not a good place for you to be. So if that happens to be you, I just want to encourage you to to recognize it, to confess it, and to turn from it. Call these people to repent and be restored. What a beautiful day that would be. Do you long for that day? Because I do. I want that so badly for the people who have gone through this process in our church. How sweet it would be to have that restoration ceremony and to rejoice together. Wouldn't that be sweet? I want to encourage you, as you pray through the membership directory, as I'm assuming you do on a regular basis, make sure that you pray for those who have been through this Matthew 18 process in our church. Pray for them to be convicted. Pray for them to repent. Pray for them to be restored. We ought to not forget these people. They profess to be our brothers in Christ. We care about them. The final takeaway for our partnership with uh, God here in caring for his flock is this. It's to recognize that God is with you. You see, verses 18 through 20 are a sweet promise from Jesus. He tells his disciples that God has entrusted authority to his church and also that he is personally with them. That where two or three are gathered and they're in agreement about these types of matters, there's backing from heaven in that stuff, in those decisions. Again, this assumes that it's in alignment with God's will. This whole, this whole process, it's always about God. It's always about his will, his ways, not ours. We can't take Matthew 18 through 20, uh, 15 through 20 here in chapter 18 and say, that's just about whatever we agree on. Then, then God backs that in heaven. That's not what we're talking about. It means that when God's people here on earth agree with his will and they execute it properly within these kinds of interactions on earth, when they're protecting each other from sin and its deceitfulness, God agrees from heaven. He stands with his people. He backs up the decisions made on earth by his church. And that's not a small thing. That's a big deal. That's a profound entrustment of authority to the church. So we better get it right. And we better not take it lightly. If you're a member of this church, you should be convicted and involved in every matter of discipline. Because it's for the entire church. It's not something that the pastors do. It's something that the church does together. We must be united and we must obey God together. It is a tremendous privilege.
of getting to partner with God and caring for his flock. Specifically in calling those who are wandering back to the fold, back to restoration. It is not the will of our Father in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Meaning, it shouldn't be your will for any of them to perish either. So let's obey the call to address sin biblically and ultimately for the sake of restoration of wayward brothers and sisters. We need one another. Now before we end, I just want to take a moment and just encourage us to be in awe of the extravagant love of God. He is a God who leaves the 99 and goes after the wayward one. How amazing is that? If, if you're the wayward one, that ought to humble you, right? And we've all been the wayward one at some point in our life, or some point this week even, and God came after you. And it's not just God coming after you, it's all of your brothers and sisters as well, that they are called out. Go find the one who is wandering. We ought to be on our knees in humble thanksgiving. Thank you, Lord, for caring for us this much. And I just want to say that if you're here this morning, and you're walking in sin, if you know that the choices that you're making right now in your life are not pleasing to Christ, I want to lovingly call you to confess that, to own it, and to turn from it like right now, here in this moment. I'm about to pray for us, and I, I just want to let you know, if, if you are in sin and you know that you need to get right with God, this would be a good time to, to do that. Whether it's a uh, a prayer of confession in your seat as you're sitting there, or whether you want to get on your knees and kneel, whether you want to stand up and, and speak to the Lord. Take time to make, make yourself right with God by his grace, by his mercy that he freely offers to you. Whether you've professed faith in, in Christ in the past but are living in sin now, or whether this would be a profession of faith for the very first time. Let's get sin addressed and dealt with. Come to the fold of God. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Lord, we just come before you um, this morning and we thank you for your word. As always, we're so thankful for the word of God and just how convicting it is, how encouraging it is, how amazing it is to see that you care for us as your people. That you did not uh, just leave us dead in our sin and our trespasses, but you have called us out of darkness and into light. And Lord, we just come before you right now and we just confess that each one of us here today, each one of us listening online, we are, we are sinful people. There is no reason for us to pretend otherwise. It's not that we're so greater that we have it all together, Lord. In fact, uh, your word tells us that we were dead in our trespasses before faith in Jesus Christ. And so, uh, Lord, it shouldn't be surprising to anyone here today to hear a passage from you about dealing with sin. I pray, Lord, that Instead, it would just be humbling. It would be a reminder of how desperately needy we were and still are of your grace and of your mercy. That we would be in awe that you would not only come after us yourself, but that you would send the whole church after us because you care about us that much. Because you want our eternal good. You want us to have the hope of heaven, of being with you. What a privilege that is, Lord. And I just pray for those who are here this morning, those who are listening online, Lord, if there are sin issues in our life that we're not addressing, that we're ignoring, that we're trying to sweep under the rug and pretend that it's not a big deal, that you would just do a work in us right now of conviction, a work of, of allowing us to see that for, for what it is, 
to see it the same way that you see it and that we would address it and that other brothers and sisters would be in our life and call us to address it, that we would allow them in. We wouldn't continue to hold people at arm's length anymore, that we wouldn't try to hide our struggles. Lord, please do a work in us this morning. Help us to be holy as you are holy. Lord, if there's uh, someone who's been stuck in a pattern of sin for an extended period of time and, and they don't feel like they can even get out of it on their own, I pray, Lord, that today they would realize that they can't by your grace, that you are ready to forgive if they are ready to confess and ask for forgiveness. That's the beauty of the gospel. We don't have to stay dead in our sin. We don't have to be condemned to an eternity apart from you. We have the hope of forgiveness in Christ. Thank you, Jesus, for coming to this earth. Thank you for living that perfect, sinless life and then going to the cross in our place. Thank you for raising again and conquering sin and death. And I pray, Lord, that that would be where our hope is found. Your death, your burial, and your resurrection and the hope of forgiveness of our sins, of being brought into your family, of being united with you. And I pray that that hope would be every person's here in this room today, every person who's listening online. It is not our desire to see anyone perish apart from you, Lord. And as we go from here uh, this, this morning and we go to serve in our community, would you give us the eyes to see the people around us, to understand that they are a soul that will spend eternity somewhere? Help us to care about them, Lord. Help us to lovingly engage with them, to build a relationship with them, and to share the hope that's in us, Lord. We look forward to how you're going to work in us in the days and weeks and months and years ahead for your glory and for our good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and worship our King.